0: Helen's babies part 10. This is a Librivox recording. all Librivox recordings are in the public domain For more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org Helen's babies by John Haberton part 10 Mothers of American boys accept from me a tribute of respect which no words can fitly express, of wonder greater than any of the great things of the world ever inspired of adoration as earnest and devout as the catholic pays to the virgin in a single day i a strong man with nothing else to occupy my mind am reduced to physical and mental worthlessness by the necessities of two boys not over mischievous or bad and you heaven only knows how Have unbroken weeks, months, years, yes, lifetimes of just such experiences, and with them the burden of household cares, of physical ills and depressions, of mental anxieties that pierce your hearts with as many sorrows as grieved the holy mother of old. Compared with thy endurance, that of the young man, the athlete, is as weakness. The secret of thy nerves, wonderful even in their weakness, is as great as that of the power of the winds. To display decision, thy opportunities are more frequent than those of the greatest statesmen. Thy heroism laughs into insignificance that of fort and field. Thou art trained in a school of diplomacy such as the most experienced court cannot furnish. Do scoffers say thou canst not hold the reins of government? Easier is it to rule a band of savages than to be the successful autocrat of thy little kingdom compared with the ways of men even thy failures are full of glory be thy faults what they may thy one great mysterious unapproachable success places thee in desert far above warrior rabbi or priest the foregoing soliloquy passed through my mind as i lay upon the bed where i had thrown myself after leaving the children's room whatever else attempted to affect me mentally found my mind a blank until the next morning when I awoke to realize that I had dropped asleep just where I fell, and that I had spent nearly twelve hours lying across a bed in an uncomfortable position, and without removing my daily attire. My next impression was that quite a bulky letter had been pushed under my chamber door. Could it be that my darling— I hastily seized the envelope, and found it addressed in my sister's writing, and promising a more voluminous letter than that lady had ever before honoured me with— I opened it, dropping an enclosure which doubtless was a list of necessities, which I would please pack, etc., and read as follows. July 1st, 1875 My dear old brother, wouldn't I like to give you the warmest of sisterly hugs? I can't believe it, and yet I'm in ecstasies over it. To think that you should have got that perfection of a girl— "'who has declined so many great catches, "'you, my sober, business-like, unromantic big brother, "'oh, it's too wonderful. "'But now I think of it, you're just the people for each other. "'I'd like to say it's just what I'd always longed for, "'and that I invited you to Hillcrest to bring it about, "'but the trouble with such a story would be "'that it wouldn't have a word of truth in it. "'You always did have a faculty of doing just what you pleased, "'and what nobody ever expected you to do, "'but now you've exceeded yourself.' and to think that my little darlings played an important part in bringing it all about i shall take the credit for that for if it hadn't been for me who would have helped you sir i shall expect you to remember both of them handsomely at christmas i don't believe i am guilty of a breach of confidence in sending the enclosed which i have just received from my sister-in-law that is to be it will tell you some causes of your success of which you with a man's conceit haven't imagined for a minute And it will tell you, too, of a maiden's first and natural fear under such circumstances, a fear which I know that you, with your honest, generous heart, will hasten to dispel. As you're a man, you're quite likely to be too stupid to read what's written between the lines, so I'd better tell you that Alice's fear is that in letting herself go so easily she may have seemed to lack proper reserve and self-respect. You don't need to be told that no woman alive has more of these very qualities." Bless your dear old heart, Harry, you deserve to be shaken to death if you're not the happiest man alive. I must hurry home and see you both with my own eyes, and learn to believe that all this wonderful glorious thing has come to pass. Give Alice a sister's kiss from me, if you know how to give more than one kind, and give my cherubs a hundred each from the mother that wants to see them so much. With love and congratulations, Helen. The other letter— which I opened with considerable reverence and more delight, ran as follows. Hillcrest, June 29, 1875 Dear friend Helen, Something has happened, and I am very happy, but I am more than a little troubled over it, too, and as you are one of the persons nearly concerned, I am going to confess to you as soon as possible. Harry, your brother, I mean, will be sure to tell you very soon, if he hasn't done so already, and I want to make all possible haste to solemnly assure you that I hadn't the slightest idea of such a thing coming to pass, and I didn't do the slightest thing to bring it about. I always thought your brother was a splendid fellow, and have never been afraid to express my mind about him, when there was no one but girls to listen. But out here I've somehow learned to admire him more than ever. I cheerfully acquit him of intentionally doing anything to create a favourable impression, If his several appearances before me have been studied, he is certainly the most original being I ever heard of. Your children are angels, you've told me so yourself, and I've my own very distinct impression on the subject, but they don't study to save their uncle's appearance. The figures that unfortunate man has cut several times, well, I won't try to describe them on paper, for fear he might some day see a scrap of it and take offence but he always seems to be patient with them, and devoted to them, and I haven't been able to keep from seeing that a man who could be so lovable with thoughtless and unreasonable children must be perfectly adorable to the woman he loved, if she were a woman at all. Still, I hadn't the faintest idea that I would be the fortunate woman. At last the day came, but I was in blissful ignorance of what was to happen. Your little Charlie hurt himself, and insisted upon her— your brother, singing an odd song to him, and just when the young gentleman was doing the elegant to a dozen of us ladies at once, too. If you could have seen his face, it was too funny, until he got over his annoyance and began to feel properly sorry for the little fellow. Then he seemed all at once to be all tenderness and heart, and I did wish for a moment that conventionalities didn't exist, and I might tell him that he was a model— "'Then your youngest playfully spilt a plate of soup on my dress. "'Don't be worried, "'twas only a common muslin, and twill-wash. "'Of course I had to change it, and as I retired, "'the happy thought struck me that I'd make so elaborate a toilette "'that I wouldn't finish in time to join the other ladies for the usual evening walk. "'Consequence, I would have a chance to monopolize a gentleman for half an hour or more.' a chance which, no thanks to the gentlemen who don't come to Hillcrest, no lady here has had this season. Every time I peered through the blinds to see if the other girls had started, I could see him, looking so distressed, and brooding over those two children as if he was their mother, and he seemed so good. He seemed pleased to see me when I appeared, and coming from such a man, the implied compliment was fully appreciated. Everything he said to me seemed a little more worth hearing than if it had come from any man not so good. Then suddenly your eldest insisted on retailing the result of a conversation he had had with his uncle, and the upshot was that Harry declared himself. He wasn't romantic a bit, but he was real straightforward and manly, while I was so completely taken aback that I couldn't think of a thing to say. Then the impudent fellow kissed me, and I lost my tongue worse than ever.' If I had known anything of his feelings beforehand, I should have been prepared to behave more properly. But, oh, Helen, I am so glad I didn't know. I should be the happiest being that ever lived, if I wasn't afraid that you and your husband might think that I had given myself away too hastily. As to other people, we will see that they don't know a word about it for months to come. Do write that I was not to blame, and make believe accept me as a sister because I can't offer to give Harry up to any one else you may have picked out for him. Your sincere friend, Alice Mayton. Was there ever so delightful a reveille? All the boyishness in me seemed suddenly to come to the surface, and instead of saying and doing the decorous things which novelists' heroes do under similar circumstances, I shouted, Hurrah! and danced into the children's room so violently that Budge sat up in bed and regarded me with reproving eyes, while Toddy burst into a happy laugh and volunteered as a partner in the dance. Then I realized that the rain was over, and the sun was shining. I could take Alice out for another drive, and until then the children could take care of themselves. I remembered suddenly, and with a sharp pang, that my vacation was nearly at an end, "'and I found myself consuming with impatience to know how much longer Alice would remain at Hillcrest. "'It would be cruel to wish her in the city before the end of August, yet I—' "'Uncle Harry,' said Budge, "'my papa says tisn't nice for folks to sit down and go to thinkin' before they've brushed their hair mornin's. "'That's what he tells me.' "'I beg your pardon, Budge,' said I, springing up in some confusion." I was thinking over a matter of a great deal of importance. "'What was it, my goat?' "'No, of course not. Don't be silly, Budge.' "'Well, I think about him a good deal, and I don't think it silly a bit. I hope he'll go to Heaven when he dies. Do angels have goat carriages, Uncle Harry?' "'No, old fellow, they can go about without carriages.' "'When I go to Heaven,' said Toddy, rising in bed, I's going to have lots of goat-cowages, and I's going to tate all as the angels a-widen." With many other bits of prophecy and celestial description I was regaled as I completed my toilette, and I hurried out of doors for an opportunity to think without disturbance. Strolling past the hen-yard I saw a meditative turtle, and picking him up and shouting to my nephews I held the reptile up for their inspection. Their window-blinds flew open, and a unanimous, though not exactly harmonious, "'Oh!' greeted my prize. "'Where did you get it, Uncle Harry?' asked Budge. "'Down by the hen-coop.' Budge's eyes opened wide. He seemed to devote a moment to profound thought, and then he exclaimed, "'Why, I don't see how hens could lay such a big thing. Just put him in your hat till I come down, will you?' I dropped the turtle in Budge's wheelbarrow and made a tour of the flower borders. The flowers, always full of suggestion to me, seemed suddenly to have new charms and powers. They actually impelled me to try to make rhymes, me, a steady white goods salesman. The impulse was too strong to be resisted, though I must admit that the results were pitifully meager. As radiant as that matchless rose which poet artists fancy, as fair as whitest lily-blows, as modest as the pansy, as pure as dew which hides within Aurora's sun-kissed chalice, as tender as the primrose sweet, all this, and more, is Alice. In inflicting this fragment upon the reader, I have not the faintest idea that he can discover any merit in it. I quote it only that a subsequent experience of mine may be more intelligible. When I had composed these wretched lines, I became conscious that I had neither pencil nor paper wherewith to preserve them. Should I lose them, my first self-constructed poem? Never! This was not the first time in which I had found it necessary to preserve words by memory alone. So I repeated my ridiculous lines over and over again, until the eloquent feeling, of which they were the graceless expression, inspired me to accompany my recital with gestures, six, eight, ten, a dozen, twenty times I repeated these lines, each time with additional emotion and gestures, when a thin voice, very near me, remarked, "'Ochenhowie, you does just as if you was swimmin.' Turning, I beheld my nephew Toddy. How long he had been behind me I had no idea. He looked earnestly into my eyes, and then remarked, "'Ochenhowie, your face is wed,' "'just like a wozy posy. "'Let's go right into breakfast, Toddy,' said I aloud, as I grumbled to myself about the faculty of observation which Tom's children seemed to have. Immediately after breakfast I dispatched Mike with a note to Alice, informing her that I would be glad to drive her to the falls in the afternoon, calling for her at two. Then I placed myself unreservedly at the disposal of the boys for the morning, it being distinctly understood that they must not expect to see me between lunch and dinner. I was first instructed to harness the goat, which order I obeyed, and I afterward watched that grave animal as he drew my nephews up and down the carriage-road, his countenance as demure as if he had no idea of suddenly departing when my back should be turned. The wheels of the goat-carriage uttered the most heart-rending noises I ever heard from ungreased axle so I persuaded the boys to dismount, and submit to the temporary unharnessing of the goat, while I should lubricate the axles. Half an hour of dirty work sufficed, with such assistance as I gained from juvenile advice, to accomplish the task properly. Then I put the horned steed into the shafts, Budge cracked the whip, the carriage moved off without noise, and Toddy began to weep bitterly. Cowage is all bloke!' said he, "'Wheels don't sing a bitty no more,' while Budge remarked, "'I think the carriage sounds kind of lonesome now, don't you, Uncle Harry?' "'Uncle Harry,' asked Budge, a little later in the morning, "'do you know what makes the thunder?' "'Yes, Budge, when two clouds go bump into each other, "'they make a good deal of noise, and they call it thunder.' "'That ain't it at all,' said Budge. "'When it thundered yesterday, it was because the Lord was ridin' along through the sky, "'and the wheels of his carriage made an awful noise, and that was the thunder.' "'Don't like nasty old thunder,' remarked Toddy. "'It goes into our cellar, and makes all de milk sour. "'Maggie said so, and so I can't has no nice white tea for my brep's pup "'I should think you'd like the Lord to go a-ridin', Toddy, with all the angels running after him,' said Budge. "'Even if the thunder does make the milk sour.' "'and tis so splendid to see the thunder-bang.' "'How do you see it, Budge?' I asked. "'Why, don't you know, when the thunder bangs, "'and then you see an awful bright place in the sky? "'That's where the Lord's carriage gives an awful pound "'and makes little cracks through the floor of heaven, "'and we see right in. "'But what's the reason we can't ever see anybody "'through the cracks, Uncle Harry?' "'I don't know, old fellow. "'I guess it's because it isn't cracks in heaven "'that look so bright.' it's a kind of fire that the lord makes up in the clouds you'll know all about it when you get bigger well i'll feel awful sorry if tain't anything but fire do you know that funny song my papa sings bout roarin thunders lightnings blazes shout the great creator's praises i don't know exactly what it means but i think it's kind of splendid don't you i did know the old song i had heard it in a western camp meeting when scarcely older than budge and it left upon my mind just the effect it seemed to have done on his. I blessed his sympathetic young heart, and snatched him into my arms. Instantly he became all boy again. "'Uncle Howie!' he shouted. "'You crawl on your hands and knees and play you was a horse, and I'll ride on your back.' "'No thank you, Budge, not on the dirt.' "'Then let's play menagerie, and you be all the animals.' To this proposition I assented, and after hiding ourselves in one of the retired angles of the house, so that no one could know who was guilty of disturbing the peace by such dire noises, the performance commenced. I was by turns a bear, a lion, a zebra, an elephant, dogs of various kinds, and a cat. As I personated the latter named animals, Toddy echoed my voice. "'Meow, meow,' said he, "'dat's what cats says when they goes down wells.' faith and it's him that knows,' remarked Mike, who had invited himself to a free seat in the menagerie, and assisted in the applause which had greeted each personation. "'Would you believe it, Mr. Harry, dat young divil got out the front door one mornin afore sunrise, all in his little nightgown, and went over to the doctor's, and picked up a kitten lying on the kitchen doormat, and throwed it down the well.' The doctor wasn't home, but the missus saw him, and her heart was that tender that she hurried out and throwed boards down for de poor little base to stand on, and let down a hoe on a string, and when she got de poor little thing out, she was dat faint that she dropped on de grass, and it cost Mr. Lawrence nigh on to thirty dollars to have the doctor's well cleaned out. "'Yes,' said Toddy, who had listened carefully to Mike's recital, and Kitty Kitty said "'Meow, meow,' when she go down ze well." And Mish Doctor said, Bad boy, go home, don't never tum to my house no more. That's what she said to me. Now be some more animals, Ock Howie. Can't you be a whale? Whales don't make a noise, Toddy. They only splash about in the water. Then grop in the cistern and plash, can't you? Lunch time, and after it the time for Toddy to take his nap. Poor Budge was bereft of a playmate, for the doctor's little girl was sick, so he quietly followed me about with a wistful face, that almost persuaded me to take him with me on my drive, our drive. Had he grumbled I would have felt less uncomfortable, but there's nothing so touching and overpowering to either gods or men as the spectacle of mute resignation. At last, to my great relief, he opened his mouth. "'Uncle Harry,' said he. Do you s'pose folks ever get lonesome in heaven?" "'I guess not, Budge. Do little boy angels' papas and mamas go off visitin' and stay so long?" "'I don't exactly know, Budge, but if they do, the little boy angels have plenty of other little boy angels to play with, so they can't very well be lonesome." "'Well, I don't believe they could make me happy when I wanted to see my papa and mamma, when I haven't got anybody to play with, then I want Papa and Mama so bad, so bad as if I would die if I didn't see him right away. I was shaving, and only half done, but I hastily wiped off my face, dropped into a rocking-chair, took the forlorn little boy into my arms and kissed him, caressed him, sympathized with him, and devoted myself entirely to the task and pleasure of comforting him. His sober little face gradually assumed a happier appearance, His lips parted in such lines as no old master ever put upon angel lips. His eyes, from being dim and hopeless, grew warm and lustrous and melting. At last he said, "'Uncle Harry, I am ever so happy now, "'and can't Mike go around with me and the goat all the time you're away riding, "'and bring us home some candy and marbles, oh yes, and a new dog?' "'Anxious as I was to hurry off to meet my engagement,' I was rather disgusted as i unseated budge and returned to my razor so long as he was lonesome and i was his only hope words couldn't express his devotion but the moment he had through my efforts regained his spirits his only use for me was to ask further favours yet in trying the poor boy judicially the evidence was more dangerous to humanity in general than to budge it threw a great deal of light upon my own peculiar theological puzzles and almost convinced me that my duty was to preach a new gospel. End of Part 10 Read by Kara Schallenberg on March 10, 2008, in San Diego, California. Helen's Babies, Part 11 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. FOR MORE INFORMATION, OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. Helen's BABIES by John Haberton. PART eleven. As I drove up to the steps of Mrs. Clarkson's boarding-house, it seemed to me a month had elapsed since last I was there, and this apparent lapse of time was all that prevented my ascribing to miraculous agencies the wonderful and delightful change that Alice's countenance had undergone in two short days composure quickness of perception the ability to guard oneself are indications of character which are particularly in place in the countenance of a young lady in society but when without losing these the face takes on the radiance born of love and trust the effect is indescribably charming especially to the eyes of the man who causes the change longer more out-of-the-way roads between hillcrest and the falls i venture to say were never known Then I drove over that afternoon, and my happy companion, who in other days I had imagined might one day, by her decision, alertness and force, exceed the exploits of Lady Baker or Miss Tin, never once asked if I was sure we were on the right road. Only a single cloud came over her brow, and of this I soon learned the cause. "'Harry,' said she, pressing closer to my side, and taking an appealing tone, Do you love me well enough to endure something unpleasant for my sake?" My answer was not verbally expressed, but its purport seemed to be understood and accepted, for Alice continued, "'I wouldn't undo a bit of what's happened. I'm the happiest, proudest woman in the world, but we have been very hasty for people who have been mere acquaintances, and Mother is dreadfully opposed to such affairs. She is of the old style, you know.' "'It was all my fault,' said I. I'll apologize promptly and handsomely. The time and agony which I didn't consume in laying siege to your heart, I'll devote to the task of gaining your mother's good graces. The look I received in reply to this remark would have richly repaid me, had my task been to conciliate as many mothers-in-law as Brigham Young possesses. But her smile faded as she said, You don't know what a task you have before you. Mother has a very tender heart, but it's thoroughly fenced in by proprieties. In her day and set courtship was a very slow, stately affair, and Mother believes it the proper way now, so do I, but I admit possible exceptions, and Mother doesn't. I'm afraid she won't be patient if she knows the whole truth, yet I can't bear to keep it from her. I'm her only child, you know." "'Don't keep it from her,' said I unless for some reason of your own, let me tell the whole story, take all the responsibility, and accept the penalties, if there are any. Your mother is right in principle, if there is a certain delightful exception that we know of.' "'My only fear is for you,' said my darling, nestling closer to me. "'She comes of a family that can display most glorious indignation when there's a good excuse for it, and I can't bear to think of you being the cause of such an outbreak.' "'I've faced the ugliest of guns in honour of one form of love, little girl,' I replied, "'and I could do even more for the sentiment for which you're to blame. "'And for my own sake I'd rather endure anything than a sense of having deceived anyone, "'especially the mother of such a daughter. "'Besides, you're her dearest treasure, "'and she has a right to know of even the least thing that in any way concerns you.' "'And you're a noble fellow, and—' Whatever other sentiment my companion failed to put into words, was impulsively and eloquently communicated, by her dear eyes. But, oh, what a cowardly heart your dear Cheek rested upon an instant later, fair Alice! Not for the first time in my life did I shrink and tremble at the realization of what duty imperatively required. Not for the first time did I go through a harder battle than was ever fought with sword and cannon and a battle with greater possibilities of danger than the field ever offered. I won it, as a man must do in such fights, if he deserves to live, but I could not help feeling considerably sobered on our homeward drive. We neared the house, and I had an insane fancy that instead of driving two horses I was astride of one, with spurs at my heels and a sabre at my side. Let me talk to her now, Alice, won't you? Delays are only cowardly a slight trembling at my side an instant of silence that seemed an hour yet within which I could count but six footfalls and alice replied yes if the parlour happens to be empty i'll ask her if she won't go in and see you a moment then there came a look full of tenderness wonder painful solicitude and then two dear eyes filled with tears we're nearly there darling said i with a reassuring embrace "'Yes, and you shan't be the only hero,' said she, straightening herself proudly, and looking a fit model for a Zenobia. As we passed from behind a clump of evergreens, which hid the house from our view, I involuntarily exclaimed, "'Gracious!' Upon the piazza stood Mrs. Mayton. At her side stood my two nephews, as dirty in face, in clothing, as I had ever seen them." "'I don't know, but that for a moment I freely forgave them, "'for their presence might grant me the respite "'which a sense of duty would not allow me to take.' "'We's comed up to wide home of you!' "'exclaimed Toddy, as Mrs. Mayton greeted me, "'with an odd mixture of courtesy, curiosity, and humor. "'Alice led the way into the parlour, whispered to her mother, "'and commenced to make a rapid exit, "'when Mrs. Mayton called her back and motioned her to a chair.' "'Alice and I exchanged sidelong glances. "'Alice says you wish to speak with me, Mr. Burton,' said she. "'I wonder whether the subject is one upon which I have this afternoon received "'a minute verbal account from the elder Master Lawrence.' "'If you refer to an apparently unwarrantable intrusion upon your family's circle, Mrs.' "'I do, sir,' replied the old lady. "'Between the statements made by that child,' and the hitherto unaccountable change in my daughter's looks during two or three days, I think I have got at the truth of the matter. If the offender were any one else, I should be inclined to be severe, but we mothers of only daughters are apt to have a pretty distinct idea of the merits of young men, and— The old lady dropped her head. I sprang to my feet, seized her hand, and reverently kissed it. Then Mrs. Mayton, whose only son had died fifteen years before, raised her head and adopted me in the manner peculiar to mothers, while Alice burst into tears and kissed us both. A few moments later, as three happy people were occupying conventional attitudes, and trying to compose faces which should bear the inspection of whoever might happen into the parlour, Mrs. Mayton observed, "'My children, between us this matter is understood,' "'but I must caution you against acting in such a way "'as to make the engagement public at once.' "'Trust me for that!' hastily exclaimed Alice. "'And me!' said I. "'I have no doubt of the intentions and discretion of either of you,' "'resumed Mrs. Mayton. "'But you cannot possibly be too cautious.' Here a loud laugh from the shrubbery under the windows "'drowned Mrs. Mayton's voice for a moment, "'but she continued, "'Servants! Children!' Here she smiled, and I dropped my head. "'Persons you may chance to meet.' Again the laugh broke forth under the window. "'What can those girls be laughing at?' exclaimed Alice, moving toward the window, followed by her mother and me. Seated in a semicircle on the grass were most of the ladies boarding at Mrs. Clarkson's, and in front of them stood Toddy, in that high state of excitement to which sympathetic applause always raises him say it again said one of the ladies toddy put on an expression of profound wisdom made violent gestures with both hands and repeated the following with frequent gesticulations as radiant as the matchless woes that poetic artist fan she as fair as whitest as lily blows as modest as a pansy as pure as dew that hides within a wawa's sun tissed chalice "'As tender as your primrose sweet, all this and more is alish.' I gasped for breath. "'Who taught you all that, Toddy?' asked one of the ladies. "'Nobody didn't taught me. I lined it.' Footnote. Learned. "'When did you learn it? "'When just this morning. "'Ockin' Howie said it over and over and over. "'Just yachts o' times out in the garden.' the ladies all exchanged glances. My lady readers will understand just how, and I assure gentlemen that I did not find their glances at all hard to read. Alice looked at me inquiringly, and she now tells me that I blushed sheepishly and guiltily. Poor Mrs. Mayton staggered to a chair, and exclaimed, "'Too late! Too late!' Considering their recent achievements, Toddy and Budge were a very modest couple as I drove them home that evening. Budge even made some attempt at apologizing for their appearance, saying that they couldn't find Maggie and couldn't wait any longer, but I assured him that no apology was necessary. I was in such excellent spirits that my feeling became contagious, and we sang songs, told stories, and played ridiculous games most of the evening, paying but little attention to the dinner that was set for us. "'Uncle Harry,' said Budge, suddenly, "'do you know we haven't ever sung "'Drown Old Pharaoh's Army Hallelujah "'since you've been here? "'Let's do it now.' "'All right, old fellow.' I knew the song, such as there was of it, and its chorus, as every one does who ever heard the Jubilee singers render it, but I scarcely understood the meaning of the preparations which Budge made. He drew a large rocking-chair into the middle of the room, and exclaimed, "'There!' "'Uncle Harry, you sit down. Come along, Todd. You sit on that knee, and I'll sit on this. Lift up both hands, Todd, like I do. Now we're all ready, Uncle Harry.' I sang the first line. "'When Israel was in bondage, they cried unto the Lord,' without any assistance, but the boys came in powerfully on the refrain, beating time simultaneously with their four fists upon my chest. I cannot think it strange that I suddenly ceased singing— "'but the boys viewed my action from a different standpoint.' "'What makes you stop, Uncle Harry?' asked Budge. "'Because you hurt me badly, my boy, you mustn't do that again.' "'Why, I guess you ain't very strong, that's the way we do to Papa, and it don't hurt him.' "'Poor Tom! No wonder he grows flat-chested.' "'Guess you's a kai-baby,' suggested Toddy this imputation i bore with meekness but ventured to remark that it was bedtime after allowing a few moments for the usual expressions of dissent i staggered upstairs with toddy in my arms and budge on my back both boys roaring in refrain of the negro hymn i'm rolling through an unfriendly world the offer of a stick of candy to whichever boy was first undressed caused some lively disrobing after which each boy received the prize Budge bit a large piece, wedged it between his cheek and his teeth, closed his eyes, folded his hands on his breast, and prayed, Dear Lord, bless Papa and Mama and Toddy and me and that turtle Uncle Harry found, and bless that lovely lady Uncle Harry goes riding with and make him take me, too, and bless that nice old lady with white hair that cried and said I was a smart boy. Amen. Toddy sighed as he drew his stick of candy from his lips, then he shut his eyes and remarked, "'Dee, Lord, bless Toddy, and make him good boy, and bless them ladies that told me to say it at den.' The particular it referred to being well understood by at least three adults of my acquaintances. The course of Budge's interview with Mrs. Mayton was afterward related by that lady as follows. She was sitting in her own room, which was on the parlour-floor, and in the rear of the house, and was leisurely reading, Fated to be Free, when she accidentally dropped her glasses. Stooping to pick them up, she became aware that she was not alone. A small, very dirty, but good-featured boy stood before her, his hands behind his back, and an inquiring look in his eyes. "'Run away, little boy,' said she. "'Don't you know it isn't polite to enter rooms without knocking?' "'I'm looking for my uncle,' said Budge, in most melodious accents. "'And the other ladies said you would know when he would come back.' "'I'm afraid they were making fun of you, or me,' said the old lady, a little severely. "'I don't know anything about little boys' uncles. Now run away, and don't disturb me any more.' "'Well,' continued Budge, "'they said your little girl went with him, and you'd know when she would come back.' "'I haven't any little girl,' said the old lady, her indignation at a supposed joke threatening to overcome her dignity. "'Now go away.' "'She isn't a very little girl,' said Budge, "'honestly anxious to conciliate. "'That is, she's bigger'n I am, "'but they said you was her mother, "'and so she is your little girl, isn't she? "'I think she's lovely, too.' "'Do you mean Miss Mayton?' asked the lady, "'thinking she had a possible clue "'to the cause of Budge's anxiety. "'Oh, yes, that's her name. "'I couldn't think of it,' eagerly replied Budge. "'And ain't she awful nice? "'I know she is.' "'Your judgment is quite correct, considering your age,' said Mrs. Mayton, exhibiting more interest in Budge than she had heretofore done. "'But what makes you think she is nice? You are rather younger than her male admirers usually are.' "'Why, my Uncle Harry told me so,' replied Budge, "'and he knows everything.' Mrs. Mayton grew vigilant at once, and dropped her book. "'Who is your Uncle Harry, little boy?' "'He's Uncle Harry,' "'Don't you know him? "'He can make nicer whistles than my papa can, "'and he found a turtle!' "'Who is your papa?' interrupted the lady. "'Why, he's papa. "'I thought everybody knew who he was.' "'What is your name?' asked Mrs. Mayton. "'John Burton Lawrence,' promptly answered Budge. "'Mrs. Mayton wrinkled her brows for a moment, "'and finally asked, "'Is Mr. Burton the uncle you are looking for?' "'I don't know any Mr. Burton,' said Budge, a little dazed. "'Uncle is Mamma's brother, and he's been living at our house "'ever since Mamma and Papa went off visitin', "'and he goes ridin' in our carriage, and—' "'Humph!' remarked the lady, with so much emphasis that Budge ceased talking. "'A moment later she said, "'I didn't mean to interrupt you, little boy. Go on.' "'And he rides with just the loveliest lady that ever was, "'He thinks so, and I know she is, and he spects her.' "'What?' exclaimed the old lady. "'Spects her, I say. That's what he says. "'I say spects means just what I call love, "'cause if it don't, what makes him give her hugs and kisses?' Mrs. Mayton caught her breath and did not reply for a moment. "'At last she said, "'How do you know he gives her hugs and kisses?' As I saw him the day Toddy hurt his finger in the grass-cutter, "'and he was so happy that he bought me a goat-carriage next morning. "'I'll show it to you if you come down to our stable, "'and I'll show you the goat, too, and he bought—' Just here Budge stopped, for Mrs. Mayton put her handkerchief to her eyes. Two or three moments later she felt a light touch on her knee, and, wiping her eyes, saw Budge looking sympathetically into her face. "'I'm awful sorry you feel bad,' said he. "'Are you afraid to have your little girl ridin' so long?' "'Yes,' exclaimed Mrs. Mayton, with great decision. "'Well, you needn't be,' said Budge, "'for Uncle Harry's awful careful and smart.' "'He ought to be ashamed of himself,' exclaimed the lady. "'I guess he is, then,' said Budge, "'cause he is everything he ought to be. "'He's awful careful. T'other day, when the goat ran away "'and Toddy and me got in the carriage with them, "'he held on to her tight so she couldn't fall out.' Mrs. Mayton brought her foot down with a violent stamp. "'I know you'd spect him, if you knew how nice he was,' continued Budge. "'He sings awful funny songs, and tells splendid stories.' "'Nonsense!' exclaimed the angry mother. "'They ain't no nonsense at all,' said Budge. "'I don't think it's nice for to say that, when his stories are always about Joseph, and Abraham, and Moses, and when Jesus was a little boy, and the Hebrew children, and lots of people that the Lord loved.' "'And he's awful fectionate, too.' "'Yes, I suppose so,' said Mrs. Mayton. "'When we says our prayers, we prays for the nice lady what he specs, "'and he likes us to do it,' continued Budge. "'How do you know?' demanded Mrs. Mayton. "'Cause he always kisses us when we do it, "'and that's what my papa does when he likes what we pray.' Mrs. Mayton's mind became absorbed in earnest thought, but Budge had not said all that was in his heart. "'and when Toddy or me tumbles down and hurts ourselves, "'tain't no matter what Uncle Harry's doing, "'he runs right out and picks us up and comforts us. "'He frowed away a cigar the other day. "'He was in such a hurry when a wasp stung me, "'and Toddy picked the cigar up and ate it, "'and it made him awful sick.' "'The last-named incident did not affect Mrs. Mayton deeply, "'perhaps on the score of inapplicability to the question before her. "'Budge went on. "'And wasn't he good to me to-day, just cause I was forlorn, cause I hadn't nobody to play with, and wanted to die and go to heaven, he stopped shavin' so as to comfort me.' Mrs. Mayton had been thinking rapidly and seriously, and her heart had relented somewhat toward the principal offender. "'Suppose,' said she, "'that I don't let my little girl go riding with him any more.' "'Then,' said Budge, "'I know he'll be awful, awful unhappy, "'and I'll be awful sorry for him, "'cause nice folks oughtn't to be made unhappy.' "'Suppose, then, that I do let her go,' said Mrs. Mayton. "'Then I'll give you a whole stomach full of kisses "'for being so good to my uncle,' said Budge. "'And, assuming that the latter course "'would be the one adopted by Mrs. Mayton, "'Budge climbed into her lap "'and began at once to make payment. "'Bless your dear little heart!' exclaimed Mrs. Mayton, you're of the same blood, and it is good, if it is, rather hasty. End of Part 11. Read by Kara Schallenberg. On March fifteenth, two 2008, in San Diego, California. Helen's Babies, Part 12. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Helen's Babies by John Haberton Part 12 As I arose the next morning, I found a letter under my door. Disappointed that it was not addressed in Alice's writing, I was nevertheless glad to get a word from my sister, particularly as the letter ran as follows. July 1, 1875 "'Dear old brother, I've been recalling a fortnight's experience we once had of courtship in a boarding-house, and I've determined to cut short our visit here, hurry home, and give you and Alice a chance or two to see each other in parlours, where there won't be a likelihood of the dozen or two interruptions you must suffer each evening now. Tom agrees with me, like the obedient old darling that he is, so please have the carriage at Hillcrest Station for us, eleven-forty Friday morning.' "'Invite Alice and her mother for me to dine with us Sunday. "'We'll bring them home from church with us. "'Lovingly, your sister Helen.' "'P.S. "'Of course you'll have my darlings in the carriage to receive me. "'P.P.S. "'Would it annoy you to move into the best guest-chamber? "'I can't bear to sleep where I can't have them within reach.' "'Friday morning they intended to arrive. "'Blessings on their thoughtful hearts. "'And this was Friday.' I hurried into the boys' room and shouted, "'Toddy, Budge, who do you think is coming to see you this morning?' "'Who?' asked Budge. "'Organ grinder?' queried Toddy. "'No, your papa and mamma." Budge looked like an angel in an instant, but Toddy's eyes twitched a little, and he mournfully murmured, "'I thought it was an organ grinder.' "'Oh, Uncle Harry,' said Budge, "'Springing out of bed in a perfect delirium of delight. "'I believe if my papa and mamma had stayed away any longer, "'I believe I would die. "'I've been so lonesome for em that I haven't known what to do. "'I've cried whole pillows full about it, right here in the dark.' "'Why, my poor old fellow,' said I, picking him up and kissing him, "'why didn't you come and tell Uncle Harry, and let him try to comfort you?' "'I couldn't,' said Budge. "'When I gets lonesome it feels as if my mouth was all tied up, "'and a great big stone was right in here.' "'And Budge put his hand on his chest. "'If a big tone was inside of me,' said Toddy, "'I'd take it out and throw it at the chickens.' "'Toddy,' said I, "'aren't you glad Papa and Mamma are coming?' "'Yeah,' said Toddy, "'I think it'll be awful nice. Mamma always brings me candy when she goes away fair." "'Toddy, you're a mercenary wretch.' "'Ain't a murnasary wretch is Toddy Yancey.' "'Toddy made none the less haste in dressing than his brother, however. Candy was to him what some systems of theology are to their adherents, not a very lofty motive of action, but sweet, and something he could fully understand, so the energy displayed in getting himself tangled up in his clothes was something wonderful.' "'Stop, boys,' said I, "'you must have on clean clothes to-day. "'You don't want your father and mother "'to see you all dirty, do you?' "'Of course not,' said Budge. "'Oh, is I going to be dressed up all nicey?' "'asked Toddy. "'Goody, goody, goody!' "'I always thought my sister Helen "'had an undue amount of vanity, "'and here it was reappearing "'in the second generation.' "'And I watch my shoes made all nigger,' "'said Toddy. "'What?' Wanch my shoes made on nigger with a bottle-brush, too,' said Toddy. I looked appealingly at Budge, who answered, "'He means he wants his shoes blacked with the polish that's in a bottle, "'and you rub it on with a brush.' An I wantch a theft on,' continued Toddy. "'Sash, he means,' said Budge. "'He's awful proud.' "'And I's done wear my tacker-hat,' said Toddy. "'And my wed-joves.' "'That's his tassel-hat, and his red gloves,' continued the interpreter. "'Toddy, you can't wear gloves such hot days as these,' said I. A look of inquiry was speedily followed by Toddy's own unmistakable preparations for weeping, and as I did not want his eyes dimmed when his mother looked into them, I hastily exclaimed, "'Put them on, then. Put on the mantle of rude Boreas, if you choose, but don't go to crying.' Don't want no mantle o' wood boyasses," declared Toddy, following me phonetically. Wantch my own pity cojes and nobody eshes. Oh, Uncle Harry, exclaimed Budge, I want to bring Mamma home in my goat carriage. The goat isn't strong enough, Budge, to draw Mamma and you. Well then let me drive down to the depot just to show papa and mamma I've got a goat carriage, "'I'm sure Mama would be very unhappy "'when she found out I had one "'and she hadn't seen it first thing.' "'Well, I guess you may follow me down, Budge, "'but you must drive very carefully.' "'Oh, yes, I wouldn't get us hurt "'when Mama was coming for anything.' "'Now, boys,' said I, "'I want you to stay in the house and play this morning. "'If you go out of doors you'll get yourselves dirty.' "'I guess the sun'll be disappointed "'if it don't have us to look at,' suggested Budge. "'Never mind,' said I. "'The son's old enough to have learned to be patient.' Breakfast over, the boys moved reluctantly away to the playroom, while I inspected the house and grounds pretty closely, to see that everything should at least fail to do my management discredit. A dollar given to Mike and another to Maggie were of material assistance in this work, so I felt free to adorn the parlours and Helen's chamber with flowers. As I went into the latter room I heard someone at the washstand which was in the alcove, and on looking I saw Toddy drinking the last of the contents of a goblet, which contained a dark-coloured mixture. I's taken black medicine,' said Toddy. "'I likes black medicine awful much.' "'What do you make it of?' I asked, with some sympathy, and tracing parental influence again. "'When Helen and I were children we spent hours in soaking licorice in water, and administering it as medicine.' Mix shit out of soda mixture,' said Toddy. This was another medicine of our childhood days, but one prepared according to physician's prescription, and not beneficial when taken ad libitum. As I took the vial, a two-ounce one, I asked, "'How much did you take, Toddy?' "'Took whole bottleful. "'Twas nice,' said he. Suddenly the label caught my eye. It read, "'Paragoric,' In a second I had snatched a shawl, wrapped Toddy in it, tucked him under my arm, and was on my way to the barn. In a moment more I was on one of the horses and galloping furiously to the village, with Toddy under one arm, his yellow curls streaming in the breeze. People came out and stared as they did at John Gilpin, while one old farmer whom I met turned his team about, whipped up furiously, and followed me, shouting, "'Stop! thief!' I afterward learned that he took me to be one of the abductors of Charlie Ross, "'with the lost child under my arm, "'and that visions of the twenty-thousand-dollar reward "'floated before his eyes. "'In front of an apothecary's I brought the horse "'suddenly upon his haunches, and dashed in, exclaiming, "'Give this child a strong emetic! "'Quick! He's swallowed poison!' "'The apothecary hurried to his prescription-desk, "'while a motherly-looking Irish woman, "'upon whom he had been waiting, exclaimed, "'Holy mither! I'll run and fetch Father O'Kelly!' "'and hurried out.' Meanwhile Toddy, upon whom the medicine had not commenced to take effect, had seized the apothecary's cat by the tail, which operation resulted in a considerable vocal protest from that animal. The experiences of the next few moments were more pronounced and revolutionary than pleasing to relate in detail. It is sufficient to say that Toddy's weight was materially diminished, and that his complexion was temporarily pallid. Father O'Kelly arrived at a brisk run, and was honestly glad to find that his services were not required, although I assured him that if Catholic baptism and a sprinkling of holy water would improve Toddy's character, I thought there was excuse for several applications. We rode quietly back to the house, and while I was asking Maggie to try to coax Toddy into taking a nap, I heard the patient remark to his brother, "'Budgie, down to the village I was a whale!' I didn't throw up Jonah, but I froed up a whole floor full of other things. During the hour which passed, before it was time to start for the depot, my sole attention was devoted to keeping the children from soiling their clothes, but my success was so little that I lost my temper entirely. First they insisted upon playing on a part of the lawn which the sun had not yet reached. Then, while I had gone into the house for a match to light my cigar, Toddy had gone with his damp shoes into the middle of the road, where the dust was ankle-deep. Then they got upon their hands and knees on the piazza and played bear. Each one wanted to pick a bouquet for his mother, and Toddy took the precaution to smell every flower he approached, an operation which caused him to get his nose covered with lily pollen, so that he looked like a badly used prize-fighter. In one of their spasms of inaction, Budge asked, "'What makes some of the men in church "'have no hair on the tops of their heads, Uncle Harry?' "'Because,' said I, pausing long enough to shake Toddy "'for trying to get my watch out of my pocket, "'because they have bad little boys to bother them all the time "'so their hair drops out.' "'I dess my hairs is a-goin' to drop out pretty soon, then,' "'remarked Toddy, with an injured air. "'Harness the horses, Mike,' I shouted. "'And the goat, too.' added Budge five minutes later I was seated in the carriage or rather in Tom's two-seated open wagon Mike, I shouted, I forgot to tell Maggie to have some lunch ready for the folks when they get here, run, tell her quick, won't you aye, aye, sir said Mike, and off he went are you all ready, boys I asked, in a minute said Budge, soon as I fix this now, he continued, getting into his seat and taking the reins and whip go ahead "'Wait a moment, Budge. Put down that whip, and don't touch the goat with it once on the way. I'm going to drive very slowly. There's plenty of time, and all you need to do is to hold your reins.' "'All right,' said Budge, "'but I like to look like man's when I drive.' "'You may do that when somebody can run beside you. Now.' The horses started at a gentle trot, and the goat followed very closely. When within a minute of the depot, however, the train swept in. I had intended to be on the platform to meet Tom and Helen, but my watch was evidently slow. I gave the horses the whip, looked behind, and saw the boys were close upon me, and I was so near the platform when I turned my head that nothing but the sharpest of turns saved me from a severe accident. The noble animals saw the danger as quickly as I did, however, and turned in marvellously small space. As they did so, I heard two hard thumps upon the wooden wall of the little depot, heard also two frightful howls, saw both my nephews considerably mixed up on the platform, while the driver of the Bloom Park stage growled in my ear, "'What in thunder did you let em hitch that goat to your axle-tree for?' I looked, and saw the man spoke with just cause. How the goat's head and shoulders had maintained their normal connection during the last minute of my drive, I leave for naturalists to explain.' I had no time to meditate on the matter just then, for the train had stopped. Fortunately, the children had struck on their heads, and the Lawrence Burton skull is a marvel of solidity. I set them upon their feet, brushed them off with my hands, promised them all the candy they could eat for a week, wiped their eyes, and hurried them to the other side of the depot. Budge rushed at Tom, exclaiming, "'See my goat, Papa?' Helen opened her arms, and Toddy threw himself into them, sobbing, Mamma, shink-totty-one-boy-day!' How uncomfortable a man can feel in the society of a dearly loved sister and an incomparable brother-in-law I never imagined until that short drive. Helen was somewhat concerned about the children, but she found time to look at me with so much sympathy, humour, affection, and condescension that I really felt relieved when we reached the house. I hastily retired to my own room but before I had shut the door, Helen was with me, and her arms were about my neck. Before the dear old girl removed them, we had grown far nearer to each other than we had ever been before. And how gloriously the rest of the day passed off! We had a delightful little lunch, and Tom brought up a bottle of roederer and Helen didn't remonstrate when he insisted on its being drank from her finest glasses. And there were toasts drank to her and her mother, and to the benedict that was to be, And then Helen proposed the makers of the match, Budge and Toddy, which was honoured with bumpers. The gentlemen toasted did not respond, but they stared so curiously that I sprang from my chair and kissed them soundly, upon which Tom and Helen exchanged significant glances. Then Helen walked down to Mrs. Clarkson's boarding-house, all for the purpose of showing a lady there with a skirt to make over, just how she had seen a similar garment rearranged exquisitely and Alice strolled down to the gate with her to say good and they had so much to talk about that Helen walked Alice nearly to our house, and then insisted on her coming the rest of the way so she might be driven home, and then Mike was sent back with a note to say to Mrs. Mayton that her daughter had been prevailed upon to stay to evening dinner, but would be sent home under capable escort. And after dinner was over and the children put to bed, Tom groaned that he must attend a road-board meeting, and Helen begged us to excuse her just a minute while she ran into the doctor's to ask how poor Mrs. Brown had been doing, and she consumed three hours and twenty-five minutes in asking. Bless her sympathetic soul! The dreaded ending of my vacation did not cause me as many pangs as I had expected. Helen wanted to know one evening why, if her poor dear Tom could go back and forth to the city to business every day, her lazy big brother couldn't go back and forth to Hillcrest daily, if she were to want him as a boarder for the remainder of the season. Although I had for years inveighed against the folly of cultivated people leaving the city to find residences, Helen's argument was unanswerable, and I submitted. I did even more. I purchased a lovely bit of ground, though the deed stands in Tom's name for the present, And Tom has brought up several plans of cottage houses, and every evening they are spread on the dining-room table, and there gather round them four people, among whom are a white goods salesman, and a young lady with the brightest of eyes, and cheeks full of roses and lilies. This latter named personage has her own opinions of the merits of all plans suggested, and insisted that whatever plan is adopted must have a lovely room to be set apart as the exclusive property of Helen's boys.' Young as these gentlemen are, I find frequent occasions to be frightfully jealous of them, but they are unmoved by either my frowns or persuasions. Artifice alone is able to prevent their monopolizing the time of an adorable being of whose society I cannot possibly have too much. She insists that when the ceremony takes place in December, they shall officiate as groomsmen, and I have not the slightest doubt that she will carry her point.' In fact I confess to frequent affectionate advances toward them myself, and when I retire without first seeking their room and putting a grateful kiss upon their unconscious lips, my conscience upbraids me with base ingratitude. To think I might yet be a hopeless bachelor, had it not been for them, is to overflow with thankfulness to the giver of Helen's babies. The End End of Helen's Babies by John Haberton Read by Kara Schallenberg, www.kray.org, in San Diego, California. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun...